everyone. So we took a bit of a break this week. We had, or at least those of us, i.e. me, who delegate or write the show, had a super busy weekend, so didn't get a full panel discussion together in time. But that is okay because we have something extremely interesting in its stead. Late last week, I had a chance to sit down with Rebecca Jessamine, who is a former chair of the Ottawa Carleton Penitentiary Community Advisory Board to talk about Doug Ford's quiet cancellation of corrections oversight and community relations committees put in place by the Wynn government. Rebecca worked on one of these boards before Ford canceled them without notice, something that should really concern us. Not only because it's always concerning when prison oversight is weakened, but also because of the just abrupt and untransparent and shitty way they went about it. It is one of those things that I think slipped by a lot of people while they were focused on the pandemic and the vaccines and everything going on in the world right now. I want to say that we will be back next week for one final pod with Grima, Alvin, and Sam, and then we'll be breaking for the summer. Next week's pod will be a mailbag, so send us questions. Each year, twice a year, we ask our audience to send us questions, and we always get good ones. We've talked about elections reform. We've talked about cabinet predictions. We've talked about nitty-gritty policy stuff, fun political stuff. We've talked about books and silly stuff. Send us your questions on Twitter at at Ontario Loud or Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. Also consider donating to our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash Ontario Loud or you can go to ontarioloud.ca and hit the Patreon link. The donations really help us pay for our technology costs, which rise and uh, help us do some promotions. So really helpful. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. All right, that's enough intro. On to this week's super important conversation with Rebecca Jessamine. So welcome back. So excited uh, to talk about today about something that we touched briefly on at the end of last week's podcast in a rapid fire, but we really felt deserved more than a rapid fire discussion on. And that is a recent decision, a quiet decision by the Ford government to quietly disband community advisory boards for Ontario's correctional facilities. This happened at the beginning of June. If you haven't heard of community advisory boards, they were implemented in 2013 under the Wynne government to essentially promote greater transparency in the prison system. These boards were made up of unpaid community members, They were, but these community members were afforded full access to an institution, its facilities, staff, and inmates 24-7. And in addition, they participated in monthly meetings with management. They produced annual reports with both recommendations to management and the ministry on changes to policy and investments that could help improve conditions and community relations uh, between the correctional system system and the broader community. So uh, a lot of good in this mandate, uh, a little bit of a surprise that the Ford government disbanded them. To help us dive into this, I'm so delighted to be chatting with the former chair of the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center Community Advisory Board, Rebecca Jessamine. Rebecca is a leading expert on drug policy, decriminalization, harm reduction, corrections, and the criminal justice system. Rebecca, thank you for joining the pod. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. So I wanted to start with the Ford government's decision to disband community advisory boards. They had already been withholding the annual reports from these boards for quite some time. And so was it a surprise to you? And and how did you hear about the decision originally? Like, how did they tell you? Sure. The ministry held a teleconference with all of the community advisory board members from across Ontario on May 21st to inform us that we would be dissolved effective June 4th. So we basically got our two weeks notice. Did they say in that phone call, like any reason why? 
they really didn't give much of an explanation in the phone call. They made reference to the fact that the ministry was planning to explore other options for community engagement, but there, there really wasn't a, a concrete reason given for a dissolution at that time. I can only imagine what that Q&A would have been like. If, well, actually, I mean, maybe I shouldn't even assume they had a Q&A. I imagine there were probably some surprised, shocked, frustrated people in the room. How did that part of it go? To be honest, the entire call lasted about 15 minutes, and that included uh, a roll call among all of the members. So there was not a lot of discussion, and a lot of people, I think, just dropped off the call when they heard the news. There was a lot of frustration among the CAD members. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And so based on the media report, the government's rationale didn't seem entirely clear to me. They made reference to cost in some way, shape, or form, but the board members are unpaid volunteers. Why do you think they were disbanded? What are your sort of former colleagues talking about as, as maybe the rationale? What political incentives would have existed in the system for the for government to make this choice? I think that we... We didn't incur costs as volunteers, certainly, but I recognize that there's administrative costs to maintaining even a board of you know, volunteers. So we were probably identified as an expense that the government didn't see value in continuing. The fact that they hadn't released our reports indicated to us that they really weren't necessarily seeing great value or paying much attention to our recommendations at the system level, which is unfortunate and, and frustrating given the time that we invested into developing those reports and recommendations and uh, the good that we saw potentially coming of them. But, you know, this isn't the only example. The Ford government has shown similar disinterest in other bodies that were developed by a previous government. And I think it's important to note too that we are a carryover from the previous government and politically that always brings sensitivities. But if you look at the fact right now that I'm Ontario is being impacted by unprecedented levels of opioid overdose deaths, and yet the Ontario Opioid Emergency Task Force has not met since the Ford government came into power. So I think that it's just consistent with the overall trend in, in not being terribly engaged with that kind of broader consultation and transparency process. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me when I was reading the news reports about it were the number of correction staff that came forward and said these community advisory boards were incredibly valuable. So maybe putting aside how the Ford government felt about it for a second, can you maybe articulate for our audience some of what the, you saw maybe the main values of the advisory boards being some of the impacts that you were having in the system? Absolutely. And I was so honored by the statements that the union provided, because I have to say, when we first started going into the institution, the staff and the union folks were, were probably those that were most resistant to speaking with us because they saw us as just another body that kind of coming in to spy on them and report on them and, and judge them. And when they started seeing our reports and started seeing the fact that we were actually making recommendations on improvements for them on things like wage parity and better training and more recruitment and retention strategies, we started building that trust and that took years to develop. And the fact that that relationship, I think, is going to be one of the greatest losses because we were able to, over time, build relationships with the different perspectives in the institution. So... 
we had the relationships with community partners, with management, with staff, with healthcare, with inmates, with community advocates. So I think that's going to be one of the great losses is that we were kind of that central objective body that could compile the information from different perspectives and provide recommendations that were benefiting everybody. And it's so important to recognize that improving the conditions in the institution benefits the staff as much as it does the inmates. It's for the people who work there as well as the people who live there. That benefits their families and that benefits public safety. It's interesting because the CDC published the report that the Ford government had been sitting on. And the first several pages were actually recognizing that the ministry had moved forward on a couple of things that had improved conditions, had been longstanding recommendations. And so I'd sort of assumed this report would be an excoriating one of prisons and, and the conditions, and that's why they would be sitting on it. But actually, well, it was honest about, I think, things that could be improved. It also recognized success and, and, and measured in quite a methodical way. And so I was surprised and the number of just clear direct impacts, like you mentioned, on wage parity and, and things like that. So now that the Ford government has removed these, I think it's worth looking at their policy a little bit. And they every sort of press release coming out of Minister Jones that I have seen has talked about the $500 million investment in the system and correction staff as a whole, something that I note the report was kind of maybe in principle in support of. What's your take on the Ford government sort of policy for the correction system in general? How should people understand it? And I think it's particularly important now that folks like you are no longer directly involved in overseeing it. I think that's a great question, and I'm not entirely sure how to answer it, to be perfectly honest, because we've heard and seen a lot that's in process. We've, I had the opportunity to see the ministry shared with us their mental health and substance use strategy, which is actually quite comprehensive and something that I was, I'm quite excited about, but I'm, I haven't seen confirmation of resource allocation to support implementation or what the timeline will be. So I, I know that there are good things underway, but I'm still hoping to see more concrete evidence that it's, it's going to move forward. We know that the Correctional Services Transformation Act actually received royal assent under the previous government, but was not, was not implemented prior to the current government and that they are revisiting that act and we have not seen it reintroduced in Parliament. So it's really hard to speak specifically to what the government policies will be and, and what kind of changes to that act they will be making. Yeah, I noticed when I looked at their series of press releases, you know, they'll announce sort of specific numbers of new officers hired, or there's a, a run recently about limiting contraband and piloting drones and stuff like that, which I, I think is, if there are some good things and some concerning things underway, I'm wondering what impact do you think the loss of these community advisory boards will be? And what I think is really specifically what in it, looking at sort of what was going through in those implementation issues that you potentially could have seen, what are you the most concerned about over the next couple of years without community advisory boards in the picture advising? I think it's really the loss of our voice in the dialogue. Even if we weren't necessarily having a strong impact on the government's policy direction, and I can accept that, we were still a voice. And at the institutional level, that was valuable. We were a bridge between the community and the institution. We were able to 
to just improve that relationship by kind of being an intermediary that could validate concerns in the community or kind of do some fact checking and dispel rumors and do some myth busting and help to address some of the stigma on both sides of the discussion. And particularly in the Ottawa community, when they're looking at a new institution being built in Kemptville, the government could really have used us as a bridge to the Kemptville community to be able to speak to some of the concerns that are being expressed uh, with regard to the development of the new institution and what that would mean and what kind of impacts that would have. So that opportunity to be a voice, to speak to the media in an impartial way has been lost. And I think that's going to be a real and more immediate impact. Yeah. I mean, I get concerned whenever any policy process moves in the direction where folks who are closer to the ground are taken from the process and things get centralized at at Queen's Park. So, And I think it's often true that policy makers don't appreciate the political impacts of that, as well as just sort of the policy. You might be able to be more expeditious, but do you know that what you're doing will land well in a in a constituency is as important a political problem as it is a as as it is a policy one? I just want to finish with sort of just open for any. This is probably an area of governance in Ontario that probably had a fairly limited audience, but is incredibly important. And is there anything that you think folks can do who might be listening to this podcast to help fill in the gaps, raise awareness, organize around issues? If we can kind of direct our our, our audience's attention to something sort of in this moment, now that we've had the loss of this incredible resource, what do you think that would be? I really think paying attention is the first and most fundamental point. As you said, most people in the community are are not overly concerned with the welfare of prisoners in the first place, let alone in the context of a co-pandemic. But we know that the, the better we can improve conditions for people involved in the criminal justice system, the more we can improve public safety. The lock them away and throw away the key idea has never, ever been successful and never will be. And we really need to look at not just improving the programming and resources that are available in the institutions, but also better supporting people in the community so that we can avoid the use of the institutions to the extent possible. I think from a citizen perspective, we know that there's elections coming probably at both levels before too long. Asking those questions of your members of parliament, where do they stand on issues of community investment, public safety? And that's, again, supports across the board, probation, parole, housing, substance use, mental health, policing. So it's just paying attention to those issues and recognizing that they do impact everybody. Absolutely. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate um, your perspective and also uh, your work on that. I I wish we had a government that recognized it uh, a little bit more than, uh, than we did. Thanks for your time today, Chris. One more quick thing before we go. Anyone who wants to know more about directions for correctional policy in Ontario should check out the uh, SAPERS review. It's an independent advisory of Ontario's correction system. Started by the Wynn government, but finished by the Ford government. It is on the Ministry of the Solicitor General website. Uh, Check it out. This is an area of policy that not enough people pay attention to. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. I'm Chris Martin. 
We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Raheem Khan helps us do communications and social media, and we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.